Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. If you have your copy of Scripture, we'll be in Matthew chapter 2 in just a few moments. Today does mark the end of this sermon series through Songs for Advent. We'll finish that up today, which means that... uh, We will undecorate our platform and our church uh, tomorrow. If you have some time tomorrow afternoon around 4 o'clock, we will take down the Christmas trees and some of the other decorations. Any help you would give would be appreciated. We finish up today looking at We Three Kings, an interesting song I'm sure many of you have sung before. It hails from uh, years ago when John Henry Hopkins, Jr., could not figure out what gift to give his nieces and nephews on Epiphany Sunday. Now, some of you who may come from a little different uh, denominational tradition might be more familiar with Epiphany than some of us Baptists are. We celebrate Christmas and then that kind of ends it. But with other denominational traditions, Epiphany represented the 12th of the last 12 days of Christmas, and it usually happened around the first Sunday in January. And it was a day that was just as likely to be celebrated with gifts and with giving as Christmas Day was. And John Henry Hopkins Jr. could not figure out what to give his nieces and nephews. So instead of going to buy gifts, he sat down and he penned the words to the song, We Three Kings, and he gave them that song as a gift on Epiphany Sunday. It was put to words, and it's a song that's been sung ever since. Of course, he used scriptural traditions to kind of pick up the nature of that song, but he also used some of the legendary kind of commentary that's developed from the wise men. The Bible doesn't say that there were three. The Bible certainly doesn't say that they were kings. They were likely magi or that they were wise men from the, from the far east that had come to visit uh, the, the, the uh, baby Christ or the little boy Christ. The Bible clearly says that Jesus was not a baby when the wise men came. He and his family had probably moved into what would be a semi-permanent residence, a home, when the wise men showed up. Uh, nevertheless, the song reflects something that is a glorious truth about these men seeking out a new king. What's interesting is if you look at the gospel accounts, each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are intentional about telling us that Jesus is Savior. If you look through all of the chapters of all four of those gospels, the gospel story is the story of Jesus who he is, that he was perfect, and ultimately that he died on a cross and rose from the dead. The majority of the gospel accounts in all four deal with Jesus' ministry on earth, but there's an inordinate amount of time, if you look at each account, given to the Passion Week. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John spend a significant portion, an over-significant portion, dealing with what Jesus did and taught the last week of his life, and also his death on the cross. Why is that? Because the gospel accounts are not particularly biographies. Their aim isn't to tell us all about Jesus. Their aim is to tell us that Jesus is King, Savior, and worthy of worship. I don't mean to imply at all that they're not true. They're absolutely true. They're just not a biography in the the sense that, say, David McCullough would write a biography like he's done about so many American figures. These gospel accounts are designed to teach us that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer, and the one who was risen from from the dead for our sins. 
but they each have specific focuses in what they're trying to accomplish. In Matthew's particular focus, in Matthew's particular focus, you get this story of the wise men. He's the only of the four gospels that includes this particular narrative. Read with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said, In Bethlehem of Judea, and for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Why is it in particular that Matthew includes this story in his gospel? I think one of the reasons that Matthew included it is because one of Matthew's major themes is the theme of Jesus as king. In chapter 1, you have the genealogy of Jesus that runs all the way back through Joseph's line, but runs back through the kings of Israel. It gives the indication that when Jesus takes the role as king, he has the right to take the role as king based on his genealogy. And then if you fast forward through the rest of the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sermon on the Mount is teaching about the kingdom of God. All the way toward the end of the book, Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, Jesus says what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, indicating that he has the authority and the right as king, not just king of the Jews, but king of all, to be Lord and to dictate to every one of us that we need to make disciples. So this narrative, this narrative about the wise men, it pushes forward that focus or that theme of Matthew that Jesus is king. The wise men came to worship who? The newborn king of the Jews. King Herod wanted to kill Jesus. Why? Because he was uh, a baby? No, because he was a threat. Herod was not a nice guy. Herod had had some of his family members killed. You would not have wanted to be related to him. You wouldn't have wanted to saddle up near that power because if he thought you were a threat, he was going to wipe you out. He was going to kill you. So Herod killed Jesus, or sought to kill Jesus, rather, and killed all those little babies there in Bethlehem, those little boys in Bethlehem later on in the chapter, simply because he did not want another threat to his throne because he had been born, Jesus had been born king of the Jews. And that, and that tells us something. It tells us, folks, that you and I can trust in a sovereign and a good God because he is king and he is ruler, and he is Lord. 
But as we look around us as American Christians living in the 21st century, the challenges of trusting that God is in control uh, really become um, uh, pertinent for us. The, the difficulties of watching our political atmosphere, the division that we have in our land, really reflect on whether or not we're going to depend on God or not, whether or not we're going to trust in Jesus that he's in charge. I mean, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, whether you lean conservative or lean liberal, there's no doubt that we can look out at the political landscape of our nation and acknowledge that something is broken and see that the way that politicians talk about issues and talk about each other, the way that they carry themselves, the way that they handle themselves, it's not the statesmanship that led our country into a great history for men like Washington and Lincoln. It's something that has become much more debased and much more problematic. It's something that as we look around, we're frustrated by that. We long for someone to carry themselves in a way that is godly, in a way that is worthy of emulation. You don't know whether when a politician speaks, he's telling you the truth or he's telling you what he wants you to hear. There, there's so much tension and tendency with that that we look at that and we say, man, I, I'm just frustrated by it. And some of you are really, really disappointed in how the election went. And some of you are not as disappointed about how the election went. Uh, our last two presidents have been tremendously polarizing, uh, either because of their values and their platforms or because of the way they carried themselves or a little bit of both. And now we're in this environment where there really hasn't even been a concession, even though the Electoral College is supposed to meet this week. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's a little bit more frustration and tension and, and there's a runoff election in Georgia if you've paid any attention. I mean, there's all kinds of tensions. And we look at that and think, man, how, how can I be content? How can I be calm? How can I be at ease? Because the tensions of 21 are not going to go away no matter who the president is. The challenges in front of whoever the next president is are going to be difficult with dealing with a pandemic and vaccinations and all of those factors. How do we trust? Now, what I'd like to do is unpack a few specific illustrations from Scripture, some claims from Scripture that remind us that we can trust God no matter who's in charge and no matter who is in political leadership wherever they are. Here's, here's what I'd like to say. Here's the, the main point. The political leaders whose rule converged with God's prophetic timelines played a role in God's redemptive plans. Get this. Every time that God interacted in the world and he had a plan, he prophesied this was going to take place or he fulfilled a prophecy by doing something, leaders, foreign and leaders within the nation of Israel, played a role in God's plans. Now, sometimes those leaders played their role with pride. They didn't always play their role humbly, in other words. You go all the way back into the Old Testament, see King Saul. One of his problems was pride. He thought he was more responsible than he was, and yet Saul played a role in God's plan. God used him in certain arenas, and then God used him to set up the nature of the kingdom so that there would be David who would rule. You look at other leaders that God used that didn't always play their role humbly. Think about King Nebuchadnezzar. 
God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah and Isaiah and many others who were telling the people of Judah that they needed to turn from their wickedness, repent, and bow before God, which is a lesson we, we learned last fall. So we worked through the book of Jeremiah, and it's a lesson we still need as Christians and still need as a nation is to turn our hearts to Christ, and that's the most important thing that could happen. But God raised up Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon for a specific purpose. God sent Babylon to Judea and Jerusalem to bring judgment upon the people of Judah and Jerusalem. God orchestrated that. God aligned that. And and the Bible tells us that if you read the book of Daniel, that God sent Daniel to Babylon. Daniel served as a counselor and an advisor, and at times even a prophet and a critic to the king Nebuchadnezzar. And he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar, and yet Nebuchadnezzar, as wicked and vile as he was, played a role in God's prophetic plans and God's redemptive plans. But he didn't play that role humbly. He was prideful. He was arrogant, so much so that at one instance, uh, because of his pride, he looked out over all of the empire that was in front of him, and he claimed that he had gotten there by himself and of his own accord and of his own power. And God struck him, uh, basically turned him into an animal for a period of about seven years. And he was humbled as a result of that. Here's all I'm trying to tell you is sometimes the leaders that God uses in the world are not the character of person we'd want them to be. Sometimes they're prideful. Uh, And that does not limit God's ability to use them. I think one thing we ought to find encouraging is that when God promised judgment, he brought judgment and he didn't have to wait on a righteous person, a righteous king, a good person to bring judgment upon his people. God worked and orchestrated even in the midst of a sinful, wicked world. Sometimes these leaders didn't play their role humbly. Uh, Sometimes these leaders played their role cooperatively. Now, I, I think we ought to be encouraged by this. There are times when God worked in the world, he made a plan, he prophesied, he predicted things, or he brought about his redemptive work. And sometimes those leaders cooperated with him in those plans. You can think about David, King David. King David was not a perfect man, very, very flawed, made some really foolish decisions against God, but his heart, for the most part, was right with God, and he cooperated with God's purposes, which is one of the reasons why Jesus came through the line of King David. Other leaders cooperated with God's plans. Think about King Cyrus from the Medes and the Persians. An interesting analogy or an interesting story, Isaiah 45, 1 says this, "'Thus says the Lord to his anointed,' to Cyrus, his anointed with Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings. In Ezra chapter one, Ezra records this, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the, proud, by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdoms and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. King Cyrus was not a godly man. King Cyrus ruled over the Medes and the Persians who had taken over the Babylonians 
Again, God orchestrating those events because he prophesied by the mouth of Daniel that the Babylonians would experience judgment for their pride and for their wickedness. God used a wicked nation to judge a wicked nation, Babylon to judge Judah. And then God used another wicked nation, the Medes and the Persians, to judge another wicked nation, the Babylonians. And in the course of judging the wicked nation, the Babylonians through the Medes and the Persians, he raised up Cyrus, another wicked king, not a godly king by any stretch of the imagination, but one that God raised up. And what did God do through that one that he raised up? He sent the people of Israel back out of exile to the city of Jerusalem, to their homeland, to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their walls. And Cyrus, to boot, gave them back all of the things that the Babylonians had taken, the temple instruments that were used for the worship of God. He set them on Ezra, gave them to Ezra, and gave them to the exiles that returned why? Because sometimes leaders cooperate with God in, their, in the plans. There, there are other leaders that, that by accident did this. Caesar Augustus would be one of those. He wanted a tax. He wanted more money. That's kind of what all politicians want. They want more money or they want more money so they can have more power. I mean, I, I mean I'm not trying to be tremendously cynical, but I mean, we see that. That's, that's kind of historical, right? So Caesar Augustus wanted more money, so he instituted a tax, wanted everybody to go back to their homeland, their home village, hometowns, so that that tax could be clearly articulated. And in the course of that decision, cooperated with God's prophetic plans that Mary and Joseph would be in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. I only say that to say this, that regardless of who our elected president is, sometimes God works through them, whether they're prideful, arrogant, wicked, or sinful, and sometimes God works through them because they cooperate with his plans. Maybe they do that intentionally. Maybe they don't do that intentionally. But here's the third truth. These leaders don't always play their role virtuously. This should discourage us and encourage us at kind of the same moment. We've got Herod in this particular story. He didn't play his role virtuously. He was a terrible man. I've mentioned that before. He had family members killed because he thought that they were threats to his leadership. And in the story that immediately follows the wise men story, uh, because the wise men did not return to him and did not give him indication of who Jesus was, which he had no interest in worshiping Jesus. He wanted to kill baby Jesus. He sent his soldiers to Bethlehem and they killed all of the boys under a certain age. It's a vile man, a wicked man. And yet, because Mary and Joseph left, because they went from Bethlehem to Egypt, because they were protected. By the way, my son asked me uh, last week, why was it that the wise men gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh? And what did Mary and Joseph have need of gold for? I don't know this for, for fact, but the gold might have helped them on their journey from Bethlehem to Egypt and might have helped them on their journey back from Egypt to, Beth, to Nazareth in the story in Matthew chapter 2. In any case, Matthew connects that to a prophetic fulfillment. The book of Hosea says that out of Egypt I've called my son. Hosea is reflecting on the fact that the people of Israel were brought out of Egypt and were brought out of, uh, out of slavery in Egypt and given the land of Canaan. Matthew connects that particular statement in the book of Hosea to a prophetic fulfillment that Jesus, 
with Mary and Joseph went to Egypt, and out of Egypt he came out, he came out of Egypt and back to the land of Israel. There's a, there's a double connection there. Part of what Matthew's doing is reminding us that Jesus is the new Israel, but we don't have time to really unpack that. Uh, but another part of what he's doing is saying that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. In other words, Herod's role, even as unvirtuous, as wicked and vile as it was, still played a role in God fulfilling his purposes and plans. God accomplished what he wanted in the world regardless of Herod's attempts to keep God from doing what God wanted to do. Herod's not alone in this. If you move forward uh, 30 or so years to Jesus' interactions with another Herod, later on in the New Testament with Pontius Pilate, later on in the New Testament, uh, they were not virtuous men. They were wicked and they were vile and they wanted to uh, control the situation that was in front of them. In fact, Pilate was a tremendous coward. He investigated Jesus. He tried Jesus and he turned and looked at the crowds and he said, there's no fault in this man. And, and for any of us who desire government officials to carry any sort of integrity, any kind of judgment integrity, we would look long for that person to free, a guilt, free an innocent man. That's not what Pilate did. He was manipulated by the religious leadership. And in a conversation with Jesus, he said this, Pilate said to Jesus, you'll not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. No one can argue that Herod's actions or that Pilate's actions or that another Herod's actions were righteous. Can't argue that Pilate's actions were full of courage. They were full of cowardice. They, they lacked a spine. They, they were sinful. They were unjust. It was unrighteous what he did. And yet God used exactly what Pilate did and the cross that Jesus would hang on to bring redemption to people all over the world. Folks, here's what we need to remember. When God has a plan to redeem people and when God has a plan to intervene in the world, it doesn't really matter who's in charge politically because God's ultimately the one in charge. The way that God interacts through the course of human history, particularly redemptive history, reminds us that yes, we should have values and we should probably vote our values and we should care, but ultimately, the person who's president or the person who sits on a Supreme Court or the people who are our legislators, they're not the ones really in control. There's one far more powerful and far more authoritative and far more in control of the situations around us than those political leaders or elected leaders, elected officials that we have. And it reminds us that we can trust. See, you and I, we really have a benefit that many others in our world don't have. We know that there's something more, something greater and someone more glorious that we can depend on. It really doesn't matter the circumstances that are around us. We can still trust in God because if you trace the way God's interacted in human history, particularly biblical history, God has proven himself a God worthy of being trusted. So how do we trust? Let me give you three very specific and quick applications for how we can trust. First, we trust by following Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't confessed your sins and turned your life over to him, that is the best and most important way you can trust in Jesus. 
I've mentioned this before as I've invited you to put your faith in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus is more than you just repeating a prayer. Trusting in Jesus is you being willing to follow Christ. It's you acknowledging that your sins are keeping you from Christ and you turning your life over to him. And if you are an unbeliever, or if you're unsure of your salvation, the best thing you can do is commit your life to following Jesus. And that is a way of us trusting him. It's, it's acknowledging that only he, only he can forgive us of our sins, only he can cleanse us, only he can give us a right relationship with a holy God. And that is the best way that we can trust in Jesus. And many of you in this room, you've already settled that. Years ago, you made a decision to confess your sins to Christ and you trusted him to be your savior and you're following him as your Lord. Amen, right? That's one of the best ways you can trust in Jesus. Now, what that means as we live the Christian life forward is that we continue to obey Jesus. I think the hangout many of us have is, yeah, we followed Jesus when we were eight or when we were 24 and we were 55. We turned our life over to him, but we're having a hard time obeying what Jesus has said. He says in John chapter 15, Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and and how we show our love for him. We show our love for him by obeying him. You want to express your trust in God? Do what he says. When Jesus tells you to love one another, love one another. When Jesus tells you to be generous, be generous. When Jesus tells you to pray, pray. When Jesus tells you to, uh, to honor him and honor your parents, do that. That is us trusting him, obeying him, taking him at his word is us putting our trust in him. So a very practical way that you can trust in Jesus is by doing what he says, by following Jesus, by surrendering your life to his word. Another way you can trust in Jesus is by rejoicing in Jesus the King. It takes an act of faith to praise God, especially when you don't feel like it. There been plenty of moments in my life in 2020 where I did not feel like rejoicing. I was not happy. I was not happy on the outside. I was not happy on the inside. I didn't feel right. You don't feel right. And yet, when we come around God's people and when we sing a song and when we pray a prayer and when we praise God and when we rejoice, that's an act of faith. It's an expression of trust. It's us saying with our lips what may not be felt inside in our hearts, but it doesn't matter whether it's felt inside of our hearts if it's true. If God is glorious and worthy of praise, and we looked at that in Psalm 98 a few weeks ago, if God's worthy of that, then folks, it is an act of trust. It is an expression of trust on your part as a follower of Jesus to rejoice in Jesus the King, to pause and say, okay, I, I, I have an invested interest in what happens with our national politics and our local politics, but guess what? I'm not gonna let that control the way I feel and think. I'm gonna rejoice in Jesus the King because no matter what, I'm in his hands and we're in his hands and we're gonna rejoice and we're gonna pray, we're gonna praise him. Let me give you an illustration of that. One of our longtime church members and senior saints passed away uh, this past week. Her name was Mary Triplett. Mary and her husband, Robert, were both baptized in this baptistry uh, one of the first ones baptized in 1951. Interestingly, they were baptized on the same day. 
Uh, and they were married nine years later. She was nine years old, I think, when she was baptized. Interesting story. God put them together. Mary and Robert served in our church for years and years. Those of you that are part of the Robert Triplett Sunday School class, you'll know his influence in his life. And, and Mary uh, struggled the last few years, especially the last 10 months or so. She was at Wilkes Senior Village. It was difficult for her. It was difficult for her to go to Wilkes Senior Village because she wanted to be at church. Uh, in fact, I can remember on a number of occasions being here on a Sunday morning and the phone rang at the church and it was Mary Triplett making sure that someone was gonna come pick her up and bring her to church. Some of you deacons have done that. You've picked her up and brought her to church and you took her back to Wilkes Senior Village. She loved the Lord. So I did her service yesterday for her family, a private family service. We, we reflected on... Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Mary wasn't a perfect person, as none of us are, but I tell you this, she rejoiced in the Lord, and even at Wilkes Senior Village, she believed God put her there. Didn't like it at first, but she recognized that God put her there, and she rejoiced in the Lord, even in the circumstances that limited her physical experience. I tell you something, folks, we trust by rejoicing in Jesus the King, and if at a funeral... We can talk about rejoicing in the Lord Jesus and praising God for who he is. Bless God, at a church service, we can do the same thing. And if you'll rejoice, it's an expression of trust. I'll give you a final expression of trust. We trust by praying for political leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we won't unpack this in detail, but Paul says that we're to pray for those who God has put in authority over us. And Paul was talking about Nero probably the emperor that presided over his death. That's who Paul was talking about when he wrote to Timothy. Pray for those who God's put over us. Let me tell you something, folks. Regardless of your political party or your affiliation, we ought to pray for the leaders that are over us. We ought to pray for them. Why? Because it's an expression of trust. It's a recognition that they make decisions that affect us, but guess what? There's one behind them who gave them the authority that they have, and he's the one who's ultimately in control. It's like if we can coerce anything in the life of the world that we live in, we go to God. We kind of bypass all the other people that we could talk to, and we talk to God about some things, and we ought to pray for those political leaders. Regardless of who you like or who you voted for, you ought to pray for who God has allowed in his sovereignty to be the one who is president or the one who is governor or the one who is our legislative representative. You ought to pray, and we're going to do that in just a moment. Here's the enemy of trust. Enemy of trust is cynicism. I'm going to unpack this just a bit more next week. What do I mean by cynicism? It's easy for us as we think about the political landscape, kind of think, man, why does this matter? I don't care about this anymore. This is so frustrating. And what cynicism does is it drives us sometimes to coldness and away from God. You'll remember John Bunyan, he authored the book Pilgrim's Progress. He authored that book actually when he was in prison because he uh, faithfully preached God's truth in a country in England who at the time did not have religious freedom. And Bunyan sensed as a young man that the devil was speaking to him. And, and here's what he sensed the devil saying. The devil's plan for Bunyan was to cool him by degrees. See, Bunyan was an enthusiast. He was a passionate, powerful preacher. And, and he didn't sense that Satan's attack was a full frontal attack. He sensed that Satan's desire was just to, a little bit every single day, 
take John Bunyan from enthusiastic, passionate preacher to a little bit cooler and a little bit cooler and a little bit less zealous. In other words, he wanted John Bunyan to become cold, cynical, and self-protecting. I wonder if that's Satan's strategy still for us today. The more cynical we become, the less we're willing to trust in Jesus. The more cold we become because of all the things that are happening in the world around us, the less likely we are to be warm and encouraging to someone who might need a word from God. The more cynical we become, the more we may push people away from us rather than invite them to know Jesus and know the Jesus that we know. I'm not telling you that trusting Jesus is going to deal with all your cynicism and frustrations. It won't automatically solve that. But I will tell you this, you need to recognize that the cynicism and the coldness and the frustrations that so many of us have experienced are not God's plans for us, not what God wants us to have. They're Satan's strategies to make us impotent and weak spiritually. How do we combat that? We trust. We trust by following. We trust by rejoicing. We trust by praying for those that God's put in authority over us. Many other ways, but those are three specific ones. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me if you will. Maybe you wanna come pray. Maybe you got somebody or something you need to pray for. Maybe you wanna trust Jesus to be your savior. Maybe you wanna pray for someone specifically. In any case, you respond as God leads. And if you don't feel the need to come forward to the altar, then how about you rejoicing? How about your, you and your song praising God? Heavenly Father, I come to you in this moment and I confess that so often it is so easy for the political environment we live in, the pandemic, the frustrations, the disappointments, the concerns, all of those things, they, they can drive us away from loving you, worshiping you, and focusing on you. They can drive us to cynicism. They can drive us to coldness, spiritual coldness. Forgive us for that. Heavenly Father, we come to you and acknowledge that you are God. You've intervened in world history for thousands of years. You are still intervening in human history. You're in control, you're in charge, regardless of who is elected, regardless of who is in charge, regardless of who is president or who's governor, or who is uh, elected official, you're in charge. And we acknowledge that. And so we're going to rejoice in you and we're going to trust in you. With that said, Father, I pray for those who are in charge over us, current president, the president-elect. Pray for our legislators. I pray, Heavenly Father, for the Supreme Court justices. Pray for all of those who have a role and a decision to make in our country. Give them wisdom. And Father, even if they can't see it or can't feel it, or even if they're not cooperating with you intentionally, I pray, Father, that you'd use them for your glory and that you'd accomplish what you want in our world. And you would help us as your people to realize that your agenda is bigger and more deep than the agenda of those who are, uh, who are in charge of us, that you want to see people come to know you, your son Jesus as Savior and bring people to a kingdom that's everlasting. Pray, Father, that we'd realize that and we line up under your plans and purposes for your glory. Teach us, Lord, to trust you. Have your way in our hearts as we close this service today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 